something happened this week that really tweaked my thinking and made me decide to stop, take a moment, and focus on something that's going on right now in our culture. We like to say that Exodus is relevant to what's going on, uh, that we're studying current topics. So I figure there's no better topic than this one. We're going to be looking at this movie that's coming out actually tonight at 9 o'clock on the Discovery Channel. It's already aired on the East Coast. If you haven't heard of it or don't know what it is, there's a movie that's been uh, produced and it's being directed by Simka Jacobavici. i got to get that name right. And it's going to be focusing on a discovery or an alleged discovery of the tomb of Christ. Why are we going to cover it? Well, you're going to be hearing about it for the next couple weeks as part of my commitment to make sure that we're always equipped of what's currently going on. I just want to spend a couple weeks talking about it. Tonight, we're just going to introduce it. We're going to introduce the topic, set it up. I want you to be critical thinkers. We're going to kind of look at it from a little bit different angle. As with all things like this that come into the church, there's already a rush of Christian scholars just, you know, descending on this topic like there's no tomorrow. Within a month, the Christian bookstores will be filled with books on the Jesus tomb that will replace the 500 books on the Da Vinci Code that are now like sitting on the back shelf that no one's buying. Okay, So you're going to hear about this, but here's my fear for most of the time, and we said this when we did the Da Vinci Code series. Unfortunately, most people that you talk to will not hear or study as much to ask intelligent questions. They're going to hear some snippet which lasts about 30 seconds as they're skimming their Yahoo page or something. They're going to see this little thing that says, the bones of Jesus found somewhere, and they're going to say, ah, and that's all they're going to hear. It's going to register. It's going to go in their head, and they're not going to have any facts about it. Normally, they might ask you a question sometimes, and unfortunately, most Christians don't have any facts to respond back. That's what we're going to be doing for the next week or two, just spending a little bit of time focusing on this issue. Another reason I feel like we should do this issue is this week, I was reviewing emails, and I had sent out an email to you guys saying, give me some topic ideas. One of the people that kind of attends this group, quote-unquote, in cyberspace, who attends uh, by, uh, by correspondence courses, I like to say it, sent me an email this week and said, I've listened now to every talk on the website. There's one subject, which is like, by the way, a, a feat. Can everybody say, hi, Jim? Go, hi, Jim. You're like, hey, Jim. Hi, Jim. Yeah, maybe Jim will hear this someday. He listened to almost every talk we've done, which is quite a feat, I think. He must spend a lot of time in traffic on the way to work. But he sent me an email saying, in all the talks that you guys have done, there seems to be one that I'm kind of missing that I haven't seen anybody really cover. And that is, I want to know something about the resurrection. Because it seems to me that my faith in Jesus Christ rests on the importance of him claiming that he was God and proving it by being resurrected from the dead. And I thought, wow, that's really amazing. I mean, he just summed it up right there, what this whole issue is about. I wasn't even going to do this topic, but as I was reading his email and I was thinking about what he said, I thought, you know what? I don't want to be a sensationalist. I don't want to jump onto this bandwagon that every other person is going to be jumping on. But, you know, for a moment, I felt maybe the Holy Spirit's saying, Spend some time on this. Spend some time on this topic because we know Easter's coming up. The resurrection is central to our understanding of Christianity. And I thought, I yield. All right, fine. We'll spend a couple of weeks dealing with this topic and maybe a couple more. Whatever it takes to do this topic right, I don't want to shortchange it. But I do want you to know you're going to hear a lot about it. And my heart was not to just jump on that same bandwagon, but really to go, Lord, if you want us to spend some time on this, we will. Go to the next slide. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, what's that? Oh, hold on a second. <laughs> Is there anybody in here, by the way, that's a black belt in karate? Raise your hand if you're a black belt in karate. 
Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Somebody in our group is a black belt in karate. Give a hand to Antoine, who not only runs, runs the whole show, we wouldn't even have a website or anything to write about or talk about or anything if it wasn't for his recording and technical stuff. But if you guys didn't get the email this week, Anthony finally became a black belt, a long career goal, and now he could probably beat us all up simultaneously, he tells me. So afterwards, we're going to test this out. We're going to move the chairs out a little bit, and we're all going to kind of encircle him, and then we're just going to see if we can take him down, all right? And he says that if we can take him down, he'll pay for dinner for everyone, all right? Anyway, that's, uh, that's that. In 2001, Antonio Banderas starred in a movie called The Body. Anybody see it? Here's the premise of it. Probably one of those movies that everybody passed up on. It was a movie about a priest sent by the Vatican to Jerusalem where supposedly an Israeli archaeologist had dug up a tomb that contained the bones of Jesus Christ. Very similar to the documentary kind of premise that's going on right now. I want to state at the outset that this idea is really nothing new. The bone box, the ossuary that we're going to be talking about tonight, was actually uncovered in Israel in 1980. So it's been around for a while. This is like not a new discovery. This movie was in part premised on that idea. It was a very interesting idea. And in this movie... Antonio Banderas plays this priest who's struggling with his faith because all his life he's been brought up in the church to believe that Jesus died and was resurrected. And he's sent by the Vatican to investigate. And he's struggling because he starts to see evidence that points to the fact that these bones that they've uncovered are the bones of a man who's been crucified. And they are the bones of somebody who seems to be buried among other people. It might actually be the bones of Jesus. And we watch throughout the movie as his faith is shaken and he starts to question things. This week when I heard about this story, I was staring at the screen as I was researching and for a brief moment, I started to wonder, what, what would happen if this was right? I mean, would we all be fools? Would we be kind of crazy? Having, you know, singing around here, playing the tambourine and singing some songs with Hannah to like somebody who's not there, who died like 2,000 years ago? I mean, what are we doing? Now, some of us in this room might smile and go, that's, that's not me. My faith might be stronger than that. Good. I'm glad. But I want it to be a reasoned faith. And also, you know there's people around you who may not be in the same place that you are. There are people around you who, when they hear this news, are either going to say, ah, I knew it. I knew there was nothing to this. I knew that those crazy right-wing idiots that are always trying to tell me about Jesus, there's nothing to it. You know, it's all made up, they're delusional. Or there might be people a little bit more in the center who are like, I don't know what this means. Can you tell me? There might be people in our own churches, maybe people in this room who are saying, I, I want to know at least that this is not true. So that's one of the reasons we're covering it. Let's take a look at what it is that we're going to be looking at. At the outset of each series, I usually try to justify why we're going to spend any of God's time studying something and so I hope I'm making a case today. That's why you're going to hear me justifying why we're spending time on this topic. Because I want to make a case that we should use a few of our Sunday nights to talk about this as opposed to just ditch the whole thing and do something more valuable. First of all, what's going on? In case you're interested, it's the lost tomb of Jesus. It appears tonight at 9 our time. It's already aired on the East Coast. I'm TiVoing it tonight. I'll let you know Saturday if you guys want to come over. We're going to just kind of open up our house. Anybody wants to see it and just kind of see the thing since you guys are here. We can watch it together and go through some of it before we continue talking about it next week. I'm also going to try to copy it onto a disc if anybody wants to see it that way. Okay? If anybody knows how to tweak a TiVo to be able to do that, come talk to me, you guys who are 
really adept at ripping things off, okay? Lord, forgive us. <laughs> the claim. Archaeologists have discovered the tomb of Jesus containing the remains of Jesus, his mother, Mary, and his brothers, as well as his wife, Mary Magdalene, and his son, Judah. Okay? I should have put that claim in quotes because obviously there's already a number of misstatements that conflict with the Christian testimony and the way we have it written in the Gospels. But once again, just so that you're clear, we found these remains. So that means that at one point here lay Jesus, his mother Mary, his brothers, as well as his wife Mary Magdalene and his son Judah. So apparently the claim is not limited to we found his body. Guess what? He's also married and had a son. You know, so next week, I'm sure they'll have an interview with Dan Brown talking about how he feels about all this. Problem with the Da Vinci Code, though, is Dan Brown said that the, the bones of Mary Magdalene were buried under the Louvre. So he's got a, so now they're, now they're, they're going to be attacking each other, okay? Who's putting it together? I already said James Cameron is behind the project. You're going to hear from him firsthand tonight. We're bringing him in here to talk. And Simka Jacobovici, who's really the main force behind it, Okay. Um, I'm sure James Cameron has some intellectual interest in the subject. I'm sure that he likes the project. Uh, he's definitely on board with it and is bankrolling probably part of it or pushing it through the studios. But Simka is the main person who wrote and directed this. He's also co-authored a book about it. And he is, you're going to see more about him tonight as we analyze the background behind this thing. All right, what's at stake? Why even study this? I wrote on the screen, Orthodox Christianity rests upon the belief that Jesus died for the sins of all mankind, but conquered death through his bodily resurrection. Okay? I underline bodily because you're going to hear from some groups as we talk about this who claim that Jesus can still be resurrected. He just left his body behind. You know, Like in those cartoons you know, where the guy gets run over by the car and all of a sudden you see the, the, like the spirit come out but the body's still laying down. A lot of Christian heresies and a lot of Christian variances as we'll call them, and some very liberal Christian scholars believe that Jesus was resurrected but not necessarily with a body. And Orthodox Christianity and Biblical Christianity, as I'll call it, based on the Biblical accounts, claim that he was resurrected in a body. Second stake, if the body of Christ has been found in a tomb, you know, a central claim of Christianity would be defeated. Then the whole thing starts to cave in. Now, I referenced Jim who wrote in and sent this email that summarized it so well, that I've always believed in Christ because he claimed he was God, and then he proved it by rising from the dead and, ex and showing that he had authority even over death. Well, he's not the first person to echo this. I mean, he's wise to summarize it in such a succinct way. But read what Paul says. Paul is addressing the Corinthians, and he's wrestling with them. Because in the Corinthian church, there was also a heresy already developing. They were disputing what resurrection meant. Some of them were teaching that you didn't need to rise at all. Some of them were teaching that you didn't have a bodily resurrection. Some of them were just saying that it was some sort of spiritual resurrection. Some were saying there's really no resurrection for us. They were all divided and fighting. And here's what Paul responds to them. And by the way, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, especially all the way, I mean, there's, there's, there's large amounts I've not put on the screen. Paul spends quite a bit of time not only dealing with what we're going to talk about right here, but specifically dealing with bodily resurrection and explaining in more detail what he means. So if you're one of these people who's wondering, can we have a resurrection and what does it look like exactly, or tell me more about the resurrection of the dead, 
Read 1 Corinthians 15 in its entirety. Paul lays out a pretty good case. But here's what he says that echoes what Jim's sentiment seems to be. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So it's not just my belief or Jim's belief or even the documentary evidence that this might affect Christianity. Paul is telling us, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. We'd be liars. We'd be telling people a story that isn't true. Our whole faith is based on the resurrection. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. His last words kind of echo a sentiment I've thought about sometimes. Like even when I was staring at the screen when I referenced that earlier this week. What if this isn't true? Wouldn't we be idiots sitting around, like I said, banging on tambourines and singing in a circle? That's what he means by we are to be pitied more than all men. Because we're putting our hope in something. That he is our salvation. That his death meant something and his resurrection meant something. And if it's not true, then our faith is kind of useless. We're just living on a lie. Right. That's what Paul is arguing, that the act of the resurrection, if it's not there, falsifies everything else. He's not, I mean, if God had wanted to make a plan where Jesus dies for our sins and there's no resurrection, I mean, it would have a lot of theological implications why that might not work. But God could probably work out something. What he's saying is he was resurrected. We do believe that. And if that's false and everything else is false and we're all lost and we're just sitting around wasting our time because that's a central part of this doctrine. Jamie. Does the, the cross signify our, our, uh, the propitiation and ultimate sacrifice that God took our place, Jesus took our place, but does the resurrection then attest to new life? Sure. I mean, there is one, it shows his, his, his supremacy over death and his conquest of it. Because symbolically to die in our place by itself and just die, like I said, maybe God could do anything he wanted. But there's an important part about him rising and conquering death and showing that he's outside the realm of death. But then also, you're right, he models for us what a new life is. Paul mentions this when he's saying, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. What he's really doing there, if you get lost in that, he's trying to say, hey, look, guys, Christ is our model. He's our example. Watch how he rises from the dead in bodily form and then ascends to the Father. One day, the same is going to happen to you. And when he goes on to talk about bodily resurrection later on in this chapter, you're going to see he spends time explaining, just like Christ does that, we do that. And he starts to actually talk about what kind of body do you get. Okay, so if you're curious about those questions, check out our series on heaven. We talk about this at length in there. Or read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. And when you're confused, go check out the series on heaven. Because it gets a little long. But he's basically saying, I'm going to tell you what kind of body it's going to be. And it is a physical body. All right? But Christ is our model. And he conquered death, rose from the dead, and we're going to someday do likewise. So the stakes of this claim in the documentary do have some impact. So biblically, 
we don't disagree. The documentary and our views don't disagree. If Christ is not resurrected, we have a problem. All right? It's not making a crazy claim. The question is, is there any validity to their claim? But here's a careful note. And you might not catch this when you hear other people talking about it. You know that my view is not to jump in and just start you know, beating up any topic without actually thinking about it from all sides. Are the filmmakers saying that Jesus was not resurrected? Actually, I'm going to quote to you what the filmmakers actually say. Because it's a very careful distinction that they're making. This is their words from their website about what they are trying to say. Even if Jesus' body was moved from one tomb to another, that does not mean that he could not have been resurrected from the second tomb. Belief in the resurrection is based not on which tomb he was buried in, but on alleged sightings of Jesus that occurred after his burial and documented in the Gospels. Huh? What are they saying? Here's what they're positing, and of course, I haven't seen the documentary, so give me that caveat because we're going to kind of watch it. It hasn't been seen yet. But this is a claim they've already made. What they're really saying is, here's how we think it might have happened. Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, The disciples probably did steal him from the tomb and eventually protected his body by moving him into a second tomb. That's the tomb we found. That's why it explains why it's not the tomb everybody thinks is the Joseph of Arimathea tomb and why he's in some bone box underneath with ten other people. Okay? Nine other people. That's their theory. And then, as a kind of tipping their hat to Christianity, like, we're not trying to insult you people. They're saying... He could have been resurrected from that second place where we found him. What's missing there if they say that? So they're saying, hey, look, that's not inconsistent with Christianity. The fact that he wasn't resurrected from the first tomb, they found it empty. All right? And of course, even in the Gospels, it records that there's a theory floating around that the disciples stole his body. Maybe it was true. Maybe they did steal his body and they moved it to a second tomb to hide him. And then he was resurrected from the second tomb. What would be missing about that in, the dis- in, in, this, in this claim made by the Discovery Channel documentary? Anyone know? Yeah, he was, that, that is going to be an issue that we're going to talk about next week about how like, this kind of grave doesn't belong to a bunch of uh, poor guys trying to hide their master. Philip? Yeah, they're alluding to a non-bodily resurrection. They're alluding to a spiritual resurrection. Where one, where he leaves his body behind. Now, there are some Christians that believe that. We called them Gnostics, kind of, which we'll talk about some of that later on. There was some Platonic belief, you know, this whole concept that Plato had put forward in that time of like, you know, spirit good, body bad. You know, easiest way to, you know, summarize all of Plato into like a few words, okay? So that the spiritual Jesus, Jesus was just appeared to be a spirit. He was never really on earth. He was never physically here. He, that's how he could be God and seem like he was among us because he was only spirit. Yet the Bible really deals with the incarnation of Jesus. Fully God, fully man, fully in our midst. Otherwise, the whole thing's just an experiment. Otherwise, he's just a CGI image kind of hanging out with us. Not a real man And a real God struggling at the same time due to his dual nature so that he doesn't succumb to sin. He's able to withstand temptation. If he's just like an apparition, 
What's the use of the devil tempting him? What's the use of him saying, I, I, I withstood everything you went through? What's the use of him taking our place? He wasn't even here. So there's real theological problems with saying that Jesus wasn't incarnate flesh on earth or later on saying that even if he was, he left that behind because that was unimportant. There is no bodily resurrection. He just went up as a spirit. Jamie? There's an interesting account of resurrection in Matthew 28 where when Christ raised up, um, that it's, it was said in Matthew 28 that also the saints that have gone before, also the graves broke open and they were found walking in Jerusalem, which was kind of a tricky thing. And evidently they looked somewhat similar if it wasn't their earthly bodies. Right. People were yeah, I do believe that our new bodies will resemble our old ones in some way because people were allowed to, you know, at least see Jesus. They might not recognize him right away, but he had common features. Put an asterisk next to that. We can't always compare ourselves to Jesus. I mean, Jesus had nail holes in his hands that he showed to Thomas. I don't know that we'll have the same scars. I don't believe that. Again, see the CDs on heaven. We spent some time talking about what our new heavenly bodies might be like, but still... Um, there's a correlation. There's a similarity there. Here's something else these guys say. Talking about ascension. Now, resurrection's coming out of the grave. Ascension's going up. It's also a matter of Christian faith that after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven. So this is what the documentary people are saying. They're trying to say, look, Christians, we're not trying to tick you guys off. We, we, you guys, your faith could still survive our documentary. Some Christians believe that this was a spiritual ascension. Again, do you see how constantly they're referring to the bodies left behind? I.e., his mortal remains were left behind. Other Christians believe that he ascended with his body to heaven. If Jesus' mortal remains have been found, this could contradict the idea of a physical ascension, but not the idea of a spiritual ascension. The latter is consistent with Christian theology. Translation, they're just saying, look, guys, we think we found his bones. So you can still have your resurrection, but it's got to be from our tomb. And you can still have your ascension, but he left the bones behind. He didn't want them anymore. Okay? Now, the passage I read from Paul seems to say that he was resurrected bodily. His ascension was probably bodily. He didn't leave again. He just he went up. We have a description of him going up with the clouds. It doesn't say anything about like, and then they look down and they go, oh my God, his body's still here. They didn't bury him again. The very concept of ascension is somehow you know, involved with flight. And if it was spiritual, I'm sure it wouldn't have been as miraculous as seeing the physical bodily ascension of Christ. All right. I just want to point out that they're trying to tip their hat a little bit to Christians saying, hey, we're not trying to insult you completely. We believe that there's still a way for you to work out your faith, but you'd have to compromise a couple things. What does this, by the way, leave out of the picture, going back to who's found in a tomb? There's no mention, by the way, of, the, of Mary Magdalene and his son Judah. So apparently, we can have a non-bodily resurrection. We can have a non-bodily ascension. But we better be stuck with the fact that he was married and had a kid, which they don't seem to tip their hat much on that one. So let's take a look at this tonight. What I want to do is I'm going to shut up in a minute, and I'm going to let the filmmakers speak for themselves. The main force behind the project is Simca Jacobovici. Who is the guy? It's fair for us to ask questions. Many of you, when we did our Da Vinci Code series, asked questions about who's Dan Brown and why is he writing the book? Well, apparently Dan Brown is a very, very rich man who was smart enough to know how to write a book of fiction that everybody half believed enough to write 100 books about it. 
Who's this guy? This is a biography of his taken from Wikipedia, a very uh, academic source, okay? But I checked his own website to just check to see if the facts were right, and the facts are right. Whenever you're cross-examining a witness in court, you want to establish if they have any bias. If you scan his resume here, um, do you guys think that there's anything that sticks out to you about his background, his previous works that could give you an, an, an element of bias? Look at his, uh, his documentaries. I mean, the guy, is he claims he's an open-minded documentary. Actually, he calls himself an investigative journalist. And then he's, his job is only to connect the dots, right? But he seems to be connecting them only in one area. So I just want you to be able to look at things like this and decode. Most of the people that are criticizing him right now are criticizing his archaeological novice, that he's not really an archaeologist, and he has come out and said, that's fair. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm an investigative journalist. My job is to investigate and to look for stories and connect the dots. Okay? Sounds good. Also sounds to me, honestly, like a PR firm has told him how to say it. Because his background seems to be slanted towards certain issues where he has, I don't want to call it an axe to grind, but a point to prove. And he's picking topics that intentionally go down a certain line Okay, I'm going to let him speak for himself. I don't want to taint it too much because I want you to keep an open mind. Tonight, I thought we would flip things around. Since we haven't seen the documentary, I'm going to let the filmmakers speak for themselves about a couple points on what they believe about faith, facts, science, archaeology, the importance of this project. Kind of leave it there. Then we'll watch it, see where it is, and come back with actual answers from Christian theologists, archaeologists, as well as non-Christian sources that I'm researching. But I, I thought it would give them the chance first. Jamie? I know it's speculation from your part, but what, what are you poking at that? Is he an Orthodox Jew, or is he he's maybe just a... Uh, his his uh, own website actually says, I think, that he is an Orthodox Jew, but I don't see it in this Wikipedia summary. Uh, so I think that's correct. But some of the critics that are criticizing his background right now, including an article that I was reading in the Jerusalem Post, was kind of poking at the fact that he seems like he's on a mission to discredit anything that encroached on his Zionist views. Okay, he has a certain view, and he seems particularly interested in that. I don't know if I believe that, although all of his documentaries seem to focus on like historical Judaism in certain areas. He's done another documentary in 2003 that was on the same type of tomb where he claims to have uncovered the tomb of James, the brother of Jesus. So he kind of seems to be like focusing in this one area, and it's not his area of expertise. So first, as, a, as an observation, even though he had readily admits and says, I'm not an expert archaeologist, I'm an investigative journalist, and I hire expert archaeologists and stuff, if you're, if you're really a generic practitioner, you would be looking for interesting stories all over the place, not focusing in like one area of anthropology and archaeology on one thing. So he is trying to almost be an expert without putting his neck out there to say, I am an expert. And I think, secondly, the criticism that's come from him, which is surprising because it's coming from people who would normally side with him, are saying, you know, you seem to have an ax to grind a little bit. Even though you claim you don't, you might have an ax to grind. You might be a little too close to these subjects. One of the areas that we'll talk about next week to refute all of this, the guy who actually excavated this 10 ossuaries together has said, I know all 10 of them 
none of them were the one that he claims was James, the brother of Jesus. And secondly, the one that he did in a 2003 documentary that they think might be James, most scholars actually believe was a forgery. And what I mean by that is that somebody forged the inscription on the box to make it look like it was James's box. So the James ossuary is in doubt in the first place, but even if it is the one, and they actually found it, let's say, because it was buried where they think James might have been buried, in this documentary, which we'll see later, they make the claim that another further proof that it's Jesus in the tomb is that his brother is buried in there with him. And most of the people who excavated it, in fact, the two people who cataloged the excavation go, categorically not true. Switch over to the screen. I want you to, I'm going to play three clips. They're only two or three minutes each. But I want you to hear what they think, why they, why they wanted to do this, and get an idea from them so you can hear it, so you're not just hearing it from me. I hope we can hear this. We've got the speakers turned up, so see if, you can, if we can do this. Go ahead. I got involved in the, in the story, in the archaeology of Jesus, the archaeology of the New Testament, through a film I made about the ossuary, the bone box, the, the limestone coffin, that made headlines a few years ago called James, Brother of Jesus. James, what the, what the ossuary actually says, is James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And that ossuary made headline news because ostensibly it was the first archaeological reference to Jesus of Nazareth. Then there was a lot of controversy where the last few words um, forged, you know, did somebody buy this bone box and try to add some words to it. But that got me into the story of the archaeology of the New Testament, the archaeology of the Gospels. Suddenly, for the first time, it suddenly occurred to me that, wait a minute, you know, the Holy Grail may be accessible in the sense that there could be archaeology, and why shouldn't there be, that's related to Jesus, his family, and the initial Jesus movement, what scholars call the Judeo-Christians, those first Jewish followers of Jesus, his entourage. So as I started investigating it, I realized that actually there is archaeology. For example, Caiaphas, who is the high priest in Jerusalem, who, according to the Gospels, condemned Jesus. Well, his bone box, his ossuary, has been found, and scholars agree about this. So I thought, wait a minute. You mean that scholars accept that a character, a main character in the gospel story, you can link him to this particular bone box, to the DNA, the bones that are inside. Then I found out that, wait a minute, it's not just him. Simon of Cyrene, very famous, because according to the Gospels, he helped Jesus carry his cross. His bone box, his ossuary, has been found, according to scholars. They're in agreement. So here it is, one of the stations, the fifth station on the Via Dolorosa, the, 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 the last walk in Jerusalem between the condemnation of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus, fifth station is dedicated to Simon of Cyrene. But here are scholars in agreement, and the public doesn't know this, that his, Simon of Cyrene's bone box has been uncovered. You know, his ossuary, his bones, his DNA. So I thought, wait a minute. You know, how come this isn't front-page news? And I realized that there's, there's this subculture of people who know certain things one person has one dot, and another person has another dot, but nobody's actually connecting the dots. And uh, then I discovered that there is an ossuary called, you know, with an inscription on it, and that on it it says, Jesus, son of Joseph. 
<laughs> Wait a minute, Jesus, son of Joseph, isn't that Jesus of Nazareth? Well, no, everybody said, you know, it's, it's sitting like in Indiana Jones style, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, sitting in a warehouse. Nobody's paying any attention to it. It was shown to me, oh, look at this. It's no big deal. And why isn't it a big deal? Because it's Jesus was a common name among Jews in the first century. Joseph, common name. It doesn't mean anything. So I just started asking kind of really stupid questions, like questions that any, I think, any good investigative journalist or filmmaker would ask. Well, if it's so common, how many such inscriptions have ever been found? Well, out of thousands, only two. Out of thousands, you only found two Jesuses with a father named Joseph? Yeah. And what was found next to this ossuary? Maria. Oh, but it's just a coincidence. Mary. Wait a minute, in this particular tomb where you found Jesus, son of Joseph, you also found, what else did you find? Well, two Marys, a Matthew, um, a Josie, which is brother of Jesus, according to the Gospels. So that kind of stopped me dead in my tracks, and I said, wait a minute, maybe there's this, the greatest story ever told is actually not being told, because it's hiding in plain sight. It's it's hidden in a warehouse and nobody's relating to it because it's too big to be true. And that started a, a two-year investigation which has resulted in, uh, in the lost tomb of Jesus. The key moment in the investigation was the identification of the second Mary. Because when the tomb was found and the inscriptions on the ossuary were cataloged, this tomb and the contents, the, the contents of this tomb never left the hands of archaeologists. It was excavated by archaeologists. There's no question of forgery or hoaxes or any of that. So then the question becomes, well, why didn't anybody pay real attention to this uh, tomb? And there were two things kind of going against this cluster of inscriptions. One was that there were supposedly common names. Jesus, Mary, Joseph, common names. Finding them together doesn't mean anything. The second is the second Mary. The two Marys in Jesus' life, as everybody knows. One is his mother, you know, the Virgin Mary. And the other is Mary Magdalene. You know, post uh, Da Vinci Code, everybody knows Mary Magdalene. Now, had the second Mary said Mary Magdalene, then, you know, the world would have come grinding to a halt. But it didn't. It didn't say Mary Magdalene. So that was used, it said Mariamne, which is a Greek version of the word Mary. And that was used as a way of dismissing, well, that proves that it's not the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth. So I, I, I had to look first at that issue, the second Mary. And interestingly enough, I, I just, you know, I had never heard Mary Magdalene referred to as anything but Mary Magdalene. But when I researched into it, I realized that Mary Magdalene is not a name. It's a title. It's like Mary the New Yorker or Mary the Torontonian. It's Mary from the town of Magdala. So, well, if that's her title, if that's her nickname, if you will, Mary the Magdalene, what's her name? Well, you know, I found out that scholars don't argue about that because of the Gnostic Gospels, because of the um, Acts of Philip, several um, 
ancient texts that have recently been discovered, the Acts of Philip in the 70, in the 70s, scholars agree of what Mary Magdalene's real name is, and her name is Mariamne. Greek Orthodox Church still calls her Mariamne, still celebrates uh, Mary Magdalene, and the, you know there's a day of celebrating Mary Magdalene as by her name, Mariamne, the Greek version of Mary. And guess what? That's what it says on the ossuary, on the coffin, found next to Jesus, son of Joseph. So it was that moment that the light bulb went on, that the very thing that people were using to dismiss this tomb was the very thing that at the end of the day would prove that, or would make the argument that this tomb may indeed be the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth. Next week we're going to bring up the evidence. I don't want to, I just can't help it. I have to say a couple things. Just to give you a preview in case you never come back, God forbid, you never hear the answer. When he says something like, did you hear what he said? Scholars, like he's basically making these broad categorical statements, like there's no dispute among scholars. Hey guys, I don't know any scholars, anything in the whole world, you know, that is, there's no dispute among scholars, by the way, okay? Even things that we believe in, like there's a flat earth society out there, okay? And they claim they have scholars. So when somebody says there is no dispute among scholars, all right? By the way, it is round, just in case you guys were just joining us, all right? Jim, the earth is round. Um, there is a flat earth society. There are so many crazy people out there that claim they're scholars, Okay. But he says it's without dispute. And then he goes on to say, let me explain to you how we know this. And he cites the Gnostic Gospels, all right? Putting aside for the moment the truth of the Gnostic Gospels, that they're, you know, whether they're authentic Christian texts or not, we at least know when they were written, all right? They were written in the second, third, or up to the one that he references, the fourth century. So this Mary Omni that he's talking about must have really lived a long time for them to write her name the way she was later going to be referred to 200 years later. Because if she's Mary Magdalene, she was a contemporary of Jesus. She didn't live 250 years for her to be renamed and rethought of. This is the kind of thing where you just, when you put it together, it sounds really good. I know that we're probably going to go, yeah, that's baloney. But if you were just to watch this three-minute clip as a non-Christian, as a skeptic, as somebody who just happens to go, what's all the hullabaloo about this? Uh, did I just use the word hullabaloo? What's all this stuff about the lost tomb? And they type it into a Google search. They land on the discovery site. It says, watch the videos. You go to the videos and you watch this guy talk for three minutes. You might just say, wow, that's pretty amazing. This guy's onto something. Because he sounds kind of like he's dispassionate. He doesn't really have an interest in this subject too much. It's like... Wow, notice how many times he says, what do you mean nobody's ever looked into this before? He keeps coming back like, wow, this is surprising even to me, as opposed to, this is going to really make a splash if I angle this thing the right way. So for those of you who believe that documentary filmmakers don't have a point to make in their documentaries, come talk to me afterwards. We need to hold you back a year in school, okay? This is Jim Cameron talking about the relationship between faith and forensic science, and I just was interested in his views. Check this out so that we know why he made this movie. Faith and forensics make very uneasy bedfellows because to the, to the truly faithful, there's no need for evidence. I mean, faith implies essentially the lack of a need for evidence. You don't have to prove it to somebody. They believe it from within through God's grace or, or whatever. 
the, the scientific method is in direct opposition to that. Scientific method says never assume that what you see is what it is. You, you know, the, you, you have to investigate, you have to find the proof, the data, and all of that. It, it, it says the world, the scientific method says the world may look flat, but it's not. And the way to know that it's not is through instrumentation, to go beyond what, what the human eye and the human brain can sort of accept at face value. So the two are, are, are really very much in opposition. In this particular case, we're right at the tectonic, you know, grinding point between, between faith and science because it's a very, it's a very loaded subject from a, from a standpoint of, of the Christian belief system. Now, my way through all this is, one, this is the most amazing archaeology story of all time. If, 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 if somebody came to me and said, we've found the tomb of Julius Caesar, which has never been found, we've found that. Okay? That would be a big story because he was a big guy in his time. Or we found the, the tomb of this guy or that guy. But this isn't the tomb of, of you know, that kind of you know, uh, top historical figure. This is the tomb of somebody who had a profound effect, not only in his own time and in subsequent times, but resounding right down into the 21st century, and and created a uh, created the, you know the the uh, the faith and the belief system for for you know 1.5 billion Christians, you know a fifth of the of the human race, and really affected all of Western civilization, the development of Western civilization, and so on. So even if you're not particularly religious or not a Christian. You know, this is still a big, big story. This was a man who had an enormous, enormous impact on the, on you know, the development of, of Western thought, our, our, our beliefs, our philosophy, and our history. So why wouldn't we want to know more about him? So if there was even the remote possibility that this is what, it, what, what Simca and Charlie believed it to be, I wanted to know the answer to that. So that began the serious investigation that was funded by the film project. There's a curious sort of thing here. You, you, you can only investigate so much without money. You have to have money for the forensics, for the, for the DNA analysis, for the robotics, for all the things that we needed to do this investigation properly. Where do you get the money for that? From a movie budget. <laughs> so so we, made a, we made a film for Discovery, and that film was well-funded, and a good portion of the budget went into actual investigative work. Do we buy the idea that faith... And facts don't go together. Let me ask it another way. Is it possible that God, being the God of the entire universe and everything that's in it, that we could also discover him scientifically through forensics, just the same way as we discover him in faith in the Bible? I believe the answer is yes. I don't know that we have the capacity to do it as humans. God's an infinite God, all right? But that doesn't mean that we can't discover facts about God, forensically even, even in archaeology. And one of the reasons I don't quite agree with the way this is going is one of the things that makes the Bible unique is the number of archaeological confirmations that the Bible is supported by. In fact, there are times when the Bible, people have questioned it and tried to say, this is not correct, and then it turned out many, many years later that scientists were wrong, the Bible actually was correct about an archaeological fact or historical fact that it stated. So, yeah, for some people, faith is enough. God bless those people, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think for others, we need to work through our faith sometimes with some sort of reasonable basis. And God is big enough and true enough that if you put him to the test, archaeologically, forensically, astronomically, whatever you want to say, historically, he's going to stand up. Because if he's really there, we can discover him using all of our faculties, not just our faith. 
We can use our reason and our intelligence and all of the tools that he's given us in our universities to use. So it's not a bad statement to make when you're trying to look dispassionate, but I don't think it gives God enough credit for the fact that you really can't test him. He's going to come out okay. We don't have to just say, ah, you can never really know. Let's just have faith. I don't think that's going to be enough for most people that you know in your schools, workplaces, and families who are going to question and ask tough stuff. They're going to want a little bit more. So let's just stop there. I'm going to leave it there. Next week, we're going to come back having seen what they've actually put together and talk about it. Incidentally, a great review in Variety, which is no friend of Christianity. You guys know Variety, like the Hollywood kind of magazine of the industry. Variety reviewed it and said, while the claims are somewhat controversial and exciting, the movie itself is about as exciting as one of those old In Search Of uh, episodes that Leonard Nimoy used to host, which is, <laughs> some of you are old enough to remember those, pretty boring stuff, okay? And the claims, they say, make just enough out of the talking heads that they put up on the screen to kind of support their views, and they flash back between dramatizations and experts and all this stuff where they just keep the ball moving so fast that you just kind of follow whatever they're saying without really thinking. And that's why we're going to kind of analyze what they say. And like I said, Christians are already rushing in from all corners of the planet to attack this thing and to put up the best they've got. We'll bring in some of their sources and attack them too, because we know we've got a bunch of talking head idiots in our camp as well. So tune in for that. This is the place where we kind of attack everybody equally. We're an equal opportunity attacker. (laughs) Let's pray and uh, close with some worship, properly putting our focus back on God instead of some of this uh, where it really belongs. Lord, I pray right now for those who've already seen this as it's already been airing on the East Coast. I pray for tonight the people who are about to start watching it in a little while. Um, Lord, I don't want to overreact I don't want to rush around and be sensational. I don't want to jump on something that you know, Lord, you're so much better at putting an end to than we are. Lord, our honest desire, and I plainly lay it at your feet, is to be humble and equipped at the same time. Not to revel in pride in our knowledge, not to believe that we know more, but Lord, to acknowledge that we do need to know more, that we do need to be equipped because there are going to be other people around us who carefully in a 30-second view of these clips or a quick news story are going to base their decision about your relevance to their life on something like this because they're going to base their excuse for not pursuing you further on something like this and we need to be equipped enough just to challenge them to look deeper into the facts and to actually know them ourselves so lord again not for pride's sake not for knowledge's sake but for your sake we come here each sunday night just to learn about you lord focus our attention on you now Take it away from this nonsense. Let's worship you as the king who doesn't need any of us. The king who loves us and chose us and did not even need to create us. This universe belongs to you. Let us give you proper glory. You are the king. We are humbly your subjects and we worship you now. Praise you in your name. Amen.